Well, hello, and today I'm talking scenarios, coups, crackdowns, and coloured revolutions. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency, and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. It's the 21st of February, 2021, and of course, at the moment, Russia watching is pretty much all Navalny all the time. And that's obviously totally understandable, given just how salient it is. But it also makes it difficult to really be able to think of saying something new. After all, everything is proceeding with a certain ghastly predictability. He was arrested and imprisoned on his return, no surprise. He was found guilty of breaking his probation, and therefore his pending sentence was activated. What else did we expect? He's then been found guilty of defaming a great patriotic war veteran, And now looming is another more serious fraud charge, which actually could add 10 years to his sentence. Well, again, I mean, seriously, what do we think the Kremlin was going to be doing? I mean, this is pretty much what we expect. There's obviously room to talk about, you know, what Team Navalny does, as I, I did in my last podcast. And there are still developments to come. And once spring comes and we begin to see a re galvanization, shall we say, of the protest movement, as well as we see if there's been any kind of progress in the struggle to extend Team Navalny's network and also to affirm the notion of smart voting and through that perhaps even win some allies amongst the systemic opposition. But for the moment, it's a little bit difficult to know what to talk about, except that I must admit I'm going to discuss something which relates to a certain dissatisfaction with some of the narratives and general coverage. This has become very much uh, an apocalyptic Putin versus Navalny struggle, as if at some point they will end up in a ring somewhere or arm wrestling for the future of Russia, which of course is not the case. Not least because Navalny, yes, of course he is important and courageous and charismatic and all these other things, but on the other hand, he is not the sole representative, shall we say, of opposition. He is not the avatar of every single Russian's hopes, fears and dreams. If anything, actually the lesson that we saw precisely is of this coalition of the fed up in which people came out to protest because of a whole variety of different issues. And in some ways, Navalny or what had happened to Navalny gave them the excuse to do so. What that tells us is really that the situation is vastly more complex. And in a way, that is the problem. When we come to prediction, obviously people want to know what's going to happen now. And the answer is, look... I don't know. Nobody knows. The truth of the matter is there are far, far too many variables from the mood of Putin and the elite to the loyalty of the security forces to the tolerance of the Russian people to just stuff happening. I mean, so often we actually find that the things that really drive history are the unexpected events that kick a hole in earlier expectations. So, Instead of trying to say this is what's going to happen, what I wanted to do is just lay out 
some possible scenarios, which are, I would stress that, they are possibilities. None of these is intended to say, this is what I think will happen. They're only barely about things that I think could happen. But they give us a sense of the different directions in which things could go in Russia, perhaps. And also, more to the point, each of the ones I raise illustrates a general point that I'd want to make about the current situation. So, I mean, let's start with something rather apocalyptic, the sort of fascistic crackdown that some people are talking about. Let's presuppose that in the Duma elections, United Russia gets the result the Kremlin wants. Of course it does, precisely because of the degree of pressure that is brought to bear beforehand and just simple vote rigging that takes place on the day. It's a particularly blatant example of manipulation of the results. And as in neighbouring Belarus, it triggers a backlash. And we see people coming out on the streets, large numbers of people, tens of thousands. Things begin to reach the Balotnaya level. And in fact, most worryingly of all for the elite, they're not just in Moscow and St. Petersburg. They are, like the protests earlier this year, actually spread across the country. This is a time for some kind of dramatic action, and the dramatic in action in question is a serious crackdown. Those members of Team Navalny to large are rounded up in a massive series of detentions. We see not every single protest, but a sufficient number of protests being met with, again, exceedingly high levels of violence. We see people obviously being rounded up. There's only a limit to how many places you've actually got to detain people, so they don't actually hold on to many. But instead, what we actually have is the sort of process in which people start to acquire reputations and the state makes it clear that there will be consequences. If you are an employee of the state, if you are a teacher or a municipal bus driver and they catch you at a protest, you can kiss your job goodbye. All kinds of different ways that we see pressure being brought to bear. Now, of course, this is unpopular and there's, there's people who fight back. And there's actually ugly scenes in the streets. But the prospects for a kind of a Belarus scenario never quite materialise. The state has large amounts of resource at its disposal. There isn't yet any kind of split within the security apparatus. You know, ultimately the police may not be happy, but they do their job. The National Guard are very much the, the tip of the spear in this respect. The army has nothing to do with this. They stay in barracks. They're not even needed, quite frankly. It's not a fun scenario. And the key thing is that in this case, it's one that actually extends. This is not just simply a brief spasm of violence. It is clear that this is the new norm. All those commentators who go out onto you know, non-state media, well, they find themselves increasingly being fined, arrested, detained, or even pushed out of the country. All those politicians who continue to advocate for you know, some kind of change in the regime, they find themselves likewise being targeted. Now, obviously, I sincerely hope this doesn't happen, and in the long term, this would, would be disastrous for Russia, and frankly, I don't think it would be tenable in the long term. But nonetheless, it could certainly be held for months and maybe even years. What do I actually sort of want to make from this point? Well, first of all, we really have to stress the extent to which things could be worse. I, I get terribly frustrated when people start throwing the F-word, fascism, about for what's going on at the moment in Russia. Or, even more ridiculously, this is something one sees quite a lot actually amongst the Russian commentariat, is parallels being drawn with the 1930s and Stalinism. I mean, this extraordinary murder machine of Stalin's, this situation in which no one could dare say anything, where you know, even praising Western technology 
was actually a crime and could get you three to five years in a gulag camp. This is not Stalinism. This is not fascism at the moment. This is an unpleasant autocratic regime that, when it feels threatened, is willing to go to extra legal means. Unple I mean, I'm, I'm not in any way justifying it. I'm just saying we do need to realise how much worse things could get. And I would want to stress that the state would win on the streets, but it would lose long term. It would lose in the hearts and minds. It would certainly lose in the economy. I think that if, if the state did give in to this temptation, it would know that, you might say, it had put itself on the wrong side of history. And more to the point, the elite would too. And I think we, we would actually begin to see opening up of splits within the elite in a fairly short order. This is one reason why precisely I think that actually the Kremlin at, the, at present is trying to, to calibrate its repression. It's trying to keep away from the danger of being forced into this kind of absolutely direct declaration of war against its own people. So let's go to a different scenario. It's just before the presidential elections of 2024, and Putin has a stroke. Now, the innermost elite very much keep this very, very quiet. They really, for a moment, have no idea what to do. After all, you know, this is about Putin, and no one really knows if he's going to recover, if he's going to recover fully, if he's going to recover at all. So what they do, they suppress information. They keep it hidden. And in part of the process of this, Sechin, Igor Sechin, once, you know, Putin's loyal bag carrier, quite literally, and then now the, the, the Baron of Rosneft, well, no, he's more than a Baron, he's a Duke at the very least, um, is installed as a sort of temporary measure at the head of the presidential administration, precisely to control this. It's not that they have anything against, let's assume it's still Vino who's there, it's just that they feel he hasn't got quite the requisite amount of iron in his soul. But of course, this is the modern world. We all should remember a dictum of the Hells Angels. Two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. In the modern world, information leaks. And what's more, the presence of Sechin, the extent to which actually all of a sudden power seems to be being in the hands of a very small handful of cronies who have no actual legal status. You know, theoretically, you know, where, is, where is the transition of power? Where is the role of the prime minister? actually all of these things be begin to start swirling around within elite circles and the concern is that this is going to lead to some kind of mass protest when as it inevitably will it spreads to the masses and it will also delegitimate the vote it's clear that the the, the, the Sechin crew are hoping that they can just sort of basically limp past the election have Putin declared president and then be able to reveal him at some point, hopefully quickly healed, or at least a suitable facsimile of him. I hesitate to think they'd be using deep fake technology to create some kind of virtual Max Headroom style Vladimir Putin. But the point is that this creates, as I say, untenable pressures within the elite, especially because at the same time, the opposition has been growing. Navalny has been kept in prison, but nonetheless, you know, his movement has managed to not just survive, but also grow turning Navalny into an, an icon of resistance. Within the certainly the Communist Party, but also other aspects of the systemic opposition, there had been increasing dissatisfaction, a sense that in some ways the Kremlin was, was demanding much more than their social contract with it um, permitted. There is a real sense that behind the scenes, pressures are building up to the point where there could be a, a dramatic break. And then, well, Sechin gives into temptation. He uses the opportunity of being in you know, virtual control of the state 
to actually sort of pass some decrees that clearly are designed for his benefit, Rosneft's benefit, and the benefit of the immediate Putin circle. What happens next? There are tanks on the streets of Moscow. They don't quite resort to the uh, cliché of playing Swan Lake this time. But it's actually in a rapid move we find that the, the military seizes power. The police, the interior ministry, in what seems to have been choreographed movement, simply declares itself neutral at this current stage. The only real forces, certainly in Moscow, that could contest this seizure of power, apart from the street, are first of all the interior troops of the National Guard, primarily the, the Zhezhinsky Division. Now, the Zhezhinsky Division is, is a perfectly sort of credible force, but you know, it's based um, at, at Balashika on the outskirts of Moscow, and more to the point, it actually exercises quite often with the military. There are quite close uh, contacts between Zhezhinsky Division, technically speaking, first Odon, uh, officer corps, and the military. And it seems that the uh, commander of the Zhezhinsky Division has been squared away beforehand. Then, of course, there is the Kremlin Guard and the Presidential Security Service. But, of course, Putin is not in the Kremlin. So, anyway, the Kremlin can just simply be, be sort of bottled up for the moment. And, you know, a relatively small force that are guarding Putin, well, in, in, in effect, what the uh, military can do is actually precisely the same as the coup plotters in the 1991 August coup do. They just simply close up the dacha in which the still recovering Putin is based. They don't have to take him, they don't have to arrest him, they just have to make sure that he can't get anywhere. Defence Minister Shoigu emerges, and he makes it very clear that he regards himself as a purely transitional figure. He actually lays out the news on national television of Putin's stroke and of the plot to conceal that. And he presents himself, and this is a crucial thing, as a triangulating figure. He says that it, you know, it's time, clearly, for some kind of new national conversation. But he's not offering democracy on next Wednesday. What he does is he try, presents himself exactly as a figure who can broker the immediate transfer of power. He makes it clear that he has no long-term aspirations or ambitions, which, of course, is code for please vote for me for president. But the thing is, he speaks to the street as the person who can be trusted, the person who can actually keep the hawks and the, the old high priests of Putinism in check. And he talks to the elite by saying, look, the street would have you hanging from lampposts if they had a chance. Yes, you are going to lose power. Yes, you are going to lose quite a bit of your money. But nonetheless, I can ensure that there is no major purge, that there is no mass campaign against you. I can be the architect of some kind of reasonable transition. Now, do I think that would happen? Well, of course, I think this is monstrously unlikely. But... It really stresses the two points that I would want to make. It's first of all, this thing about stuff happening. When you have such a Putin-centric system, something happening to Putin is not something that can be sort of just swept away. You cannot rely on your formal constitution when you have spent so much of the time actually breaching said constitutional order in your own interests. And the second point is this one about triangulation. I mean, this is one of the reasons why... It'll be interesting to see. I'm not convinced if Navalny will be able to achieve that kind of position in which he could be anything other than existentially threatening for the old elite. When it comes down to it, you know, these are people who do have money, power, and a ruthless capacity and will to hold on to that. 
And if they absolutely feel that their only alternative is, you know, or only, rather only alternatives, are between essentially surrendering all of that or fighting to the death, then they might be tempted to fight to the death. There will be the need for someone who actually in some ways can reach a deal with them. Now, it could be that Navalny will offer them something, a sort of uh, an opportunity to basically buy their way back into legitimacy, to hand over many of their ill-gotten gains, to step back from their political power, but at least hold on to a certain amount of money, a certain amount of autonomy, and above all, the capacity to stay out of prison. It may be that he'll do that. I'm not sure, and especially being, being stuck in prison doesn't have a tendency to make people all the more uh, willing to compromise with the people who stuck you there. So it might be that it actually it's going to be someone else who emerges. And Navalny represents one pole of the system against which this triangulating figure will, will set the elite. Again, we'll have to wait and see. Let's move to a third scenario, a colour revolution. So this time, yes, of course, the state Duma elections aren't really going to be, in my opinion, a kind of catalyst for anything dramatic. But, again, we'll assume that Navalny stays alive, and above all that, the, the, the mytho- mythology of Navalny um, is kept alive, that he does become this sort of symbolic figure of moral as well as political resistance to the state. And we do start seeing him, you know, on T-shirts, uh, his his silhouette spray-painted onto walls or whatever else. Or more likely these days, you know, he, he becomes an, an underground emoji or something. And that the opposition movement can manage to stay sufficiently active that precisely it, it is able to you know, communicate its messages and its views around the country. Now, again, we have, let's say, 2024 elections obviously rigged especially because because of smart voting it ends up that the Navalnyites are all supportive of the communist candidate let's say it's someone other than Zyuganov or Grudinin someone we're not expecting that you know the Kremlin installs a slightly more appealing communist candidate precisely because they hope to be able to drag away support and thus neutralize opposition but instead what happens is he's precisely appealing enough that smart voting actually has considerable success. Of course, this candidate wouldn't, wouldn't beat Putin. But even just the appearance of a close-run election is deemed by the Kremlin and its political technologists to be too politically dangerous. So again, they, they engage in obvious rigging. And the result is street protest. Street protest that is dealt with harshly, as in the sort of crackdown scenario, but inconsistently, because that is one of the crucial things. And certainly if we look at the lessons of the Orange Revolution and the Euromaidan, it is the fact that sort of Yanukovych could, you know, was at some point thoroughly brutal in his response, but then didn't follow up. So he was brutal enough to radicalise, but not brutal enough to actually win the street until it was too late for him to do so. Anyway, that's pretty much what happens this time. It's too inconsistent. And at the same time, we see a series of spontaneous defections from the elite. We see people who are now speaking out. We see people within the security apparatus, above all the police, and also the military, who are expressing concerns about what's going on. Now, this is not likely to be Maidan as much. You know, we're not going to see, I don't know, Red Square or, or anywhere else becoming the focus of essentially a sort of a, a, a military confrontation. Rather, this is more going to be like the Polish scenario. What happened in pre-martial law Poland back in late 70s, early 80s. That instead you just have you know, growing waves of strikes, new organisations sort of cropping up, 
Now, again, in the Polish scenario, the, the Catholic Church was, was a crucial sort of support mechanism, shall you say, for the, for the protest. It's certainly not going to be the Russian Orthodox Church, I think, in this case. But one way or the other, what we see is you know, a, a growing dynamic of protest. And remember, momentum is all in this case. And after a certain point, you begin to see the ruthless and pragmatic figures in the Kremlin begin to think, well, do we need to do something? By this point, the opportunities for a serious crackdown have become far harder because the military is making clear that they would be uncomfortable with seeing blood on the cobblestones. And before you know it, support for the regime is crumbling and people are looking for compromises. People are looking, frankly, for escape routes. And at this point, well, again, maybe Navalny will emerge as the figure who can actually offer enough of a deal to the elite to be palatable, but also clearly the kind of change that the street is now demanding. And so a colour revolution, maybe, it's, maybe it'll be the white one, one way or the other, comes to Russia. Do I think it's going to happen? No. But nonetheless, again, I think the one thing it does stress is we should never, ever... Um, take for granted the continued tolerance of the masses. In some of the, uh, the commentary, you see stuff about you know the Russians' constant willingness to be patient and enduring and so forth. I'm not convinced that Russians, certainly not today's Russians, are any more passive than anyone else. I mean, they are, of course, sensible. They're not necessarily going to take chances. And... You know, their, their, their conditions are not so terrible that they necessarily feel that they have no alternative but, but to protest or, or resist. But on the other hand, they have become accustomed, I would say, to a certain degree of at least a feeling of democracy, at least a sense that they have some kind of say in their future. If that is absolutely denied them, then why should we assume that they are going to be any less willing than the Belarusians to actually resist? So let's think about the scenario that I kind of touched on in my previous podcast, the, the, the Stalipin variant, you know, harkening back to the point of Peter Stalipin, the uh, czarist prime minister who managed to combine both repression with some kind of attempt to actually change the, the fundamental basics of, of the state. In his case, to create a, a rural yeomanry who would be a sort of bastion of, of, of czarism. So what we would see is, on the one hand, repression but again the kind of the, the quiet and and workaday sort more than anything else yes of course you you know the the opposition is not going to be able to operate unhindered yes of course Navalny is going to be kept in prison and as far as possible kept isolated and silenced but set against that is a campaign of systemic albeit selective anti-corruption both to steal Navalny's thunder and also for the systemic value that this would bring it will not, of course, go against the Sechins and the Rotenbergs, the people at the heart of Putin, both because Putin wouldn't allow it, but also because they are too close to Putin. If they're revealed to be rotten, as we know they are, then it demonstrates something about the rottenness of their friend and their boss. So it would actually delegitimize Putin too, I think, dramatically, I would suggest. But nonetheless, the key point is that people must be able to feel this campaign against corruption in their lives. And so what we will probably see is not just the obvious one of kind of cracking down on you know, corrupt traffic cops and fire inspectors and all the usual suspects, petty predators, but also a renegotiation of the social contract toward the top of the system. And with it, the imposition of a new level, a lower level, of the acceptable levels of graft. 
And that includes the people at, at the very top. Because you know, what happens at the moment is that effectively there is this invisible drain on every state procurement order, every bit of, of, of activity that is conducted by the state, because someone somewhere is dipping their beak. Well, the answer is now not you will never dip your beak, but you'll dip your beak a little bit less, or maybe even a lot less. You know, but one way or the other, the idea is this way, that what spending the state can afford to put into addressing the needs of ordinary Russians is much, much less likely to be wasted, squandered on, you know, new new Dachas, Bentleys and Swiss bank accounts. And then also there will be an element of more spending on real projects which are intended to, again, affect the lives of ordinary Russians. So things like, again, infrastructure, education, healthcare, you know, places where actually you know, a relatively small amount of money can begin to have, you know, a, a, an appreciable effect. You know, you're not going to turn around the the state of the, of the Russian healthcare system, which is kind of okay in its basics, but you know could could do with quite a bit of TLC. But on the other hand, you know, if all of a sudden you you find that you know medical facilities are looking cleaner and are looking more spruced up, then immediately that gives a sense of something changing, even if it is essentially cosmetic. So there are things that can be done that, in a relatively short time span, can begin to actually give people the sense, and genuinely will change their lives for the better. And then, well, the big one, rule of law. Now again, we've seen in the past that it is not impossible to reconcile quite a bit of graft and impunity at the top of the system with actually a working legal system for pretty much everyone else. And we saw that, for example, with the rise of the arbitrage commercial courts, which actually did a pretty good job until they're once again subsumed within the regular courts and once again justice became something that basically was up for grabs, was up for auction. So there would actually have to be a reversal of that process. Once again, we'd have to see more rule of law. And yes, that would mean that the, the higher members of the elite would have to restrain themselves more, or if necessary, be restrained. Less chance to just buy your way out of the situation when your uh, drunk and drugged up kid kills someone in a car accident that was clearly their fault. Less opportunities to use the law to basically raid your rivals, steal their companies, put them in prison, and so forth. Yes, it would mean a certain degree of self-control, or as I say, control from above, but nonetheless, it is possible. Again, not that I think this is particularly likely. This is, in some ways, the kind of authoritarian dream scenario. But the point is, it can be done. The system could be remodelled in this way. The crucial thing is, look, I mean, Stalipin ultimately failed because the Tsar was not willing to back him up. And ultimately, yes, I mean, he also failed because he was assassinated. But even there, there is a certain amount of circumstantial evidence to suggest that the Tsar might not have been behind the assassination, but could well have known about it in advance and therefore implicitly given it his blessing. So everything depends on the support of the Tsar. Do I believe that Putin has the, the clarity of vision, the determination, and the ruthlessness to his own that this would require? Well, no, but he might surprise us. Systems can sometimes remodel themselves from within. So that, again, that's something to, to bear in mind. Another scenario. And don't worry, there's only two more to go. The nationalist alternative. There is a massive predictable crackdown on the democratic and anti-corruption opposition. 
Meanwhile, because of the signs of some kind of uh, backlash and resistance within the Communist Party, it too is neutered. Figures who seem supportive of Navalny are pushed out, marginalised or just stepped on very, very hard. But of course, the coalition of the fed up doesn't go away. The Kremlin relies purely on this kind of targeted repression rather than actually in terms of dealing in any kind of meaningful timetable with the the concerns and challenges facing ordinary Russians. Sure, someday the national projects are going to deliver, yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost the national projects become some kind of bitter joke. They're always, you know, I suppose it, it was like communism back in the days of the Soviet state. You know, it was this blessed land that was always just over the horizon, and in the meantime, people were suffering. In a desperate move to kind of regain some kind of international legitimacy, above all for the potential economic value, after the presidential elections, Putin withdraws Russian forces from the Donbass as part of a move which implicitly means that Crimea is recognised as Russian. Not formally. Kiev will never go along with this, and the West will never actually officially say, yes, yes, that's fine. But it becomes essentially the same sort of deal as with the Baltic states after their annexation and after World War II. There's always a little asterisk on the maps to say, but we don't really believe it's part of Russia. But in practice, the West accepts Crimea as Russian. And this, in purely uh, geopolitical terms, is a good deal for Moscow. A West which is desperate for some kind of reset, isn't it always, is happy to, as a result of this, declare considerably bygones are bygones. Sanctions, or at least some sanctions, get lifted, and this seems to be a great step forward. But not for everyone. Instead, what this also does is it radicalises the nationalist critics of, of the Kremlin. And at this very same time that this coalition of the Fed up, having seen um, a particularly farcical and stage-managed presidential election go past, begins to just be looking for some new catalysts, some new champions. So what we get is actually the rise of a new nationalist critique of Putinism, which, it has to be said, we see already, if you look at the movement for which uh, Igor Girkin, so-called Strelkov, um, the, the infamous man who, by his own account, pulled the trigger on the war in the Donbass, that his movement stands for precisely a, a form of law-based democratic state. Why? Because as far as they're concerned, Putin is able to betray the interests of the Russian people precisely because he is an autocrat and there are no checks and balances. So actually, you know, what we get is figures, you know, not, not Girkin, he's not exactly the most charismatic figure in this context, but, you know, another, a, a new generation of nationalist reformers, shall we call them, who precisely, they advocate the rule of law, they advocate um, a massive and probably rather vicious anti-corruption campaign, perhaps even reviving the old troikas, the sort of three-man judge, jury and executioner teams which dispensed revolutionary quote-unquote justice during the uh, Russian Civil War um, to deal with corruption. A, A kind of populist kind of nationalism that in some ways verges into fascism in terms of its advocacy of the need for the state to collectively look after the interests of the masses, but also, again, has has strong elements of um, almost liberalism, because ultimately they regard what is going on at the moment as being unpatriotic, and anything that therefore breaks the current system is patriotic. It allows Russians to once again be Russians. And this becomes an interesting challenge precisely because it hits Putinism at some of its weaknesses. 
it is going to be much more likely to appeal to figures within, for example, the security apparatus. It is harder to delegitimize as being somehow, you know, tools of the West and so forth when these people are nationalists and advocates of a strong, even aggressive foreign policy abroad. Do I think it's going to happen? Well, again, I would want to stress, none of these are predictions. These are all just possible projections. But I think it's important, first of all, to, as a way of emphasising that change can be, from our point of view in the West, for the worse. But nonetheless, that we shouldn't make easy, crass assumptions that sort of nationalism is bad, that uh, Putin will always be able to count on the Russian nationalist appeal. And also, more broadly, it stresses the point to which politics is about a narrative struggle. And what we're actually going to be seeing in Russia over the next few years is a political struggle for the imaginations of the Russian people. I mean, one of the key things, after all, about Navalny's campaign is to try and give Russians a sense that change is possible and change is desirable, that Russians can be happy, as he put it in his uh, closing speech in, the most, in his most recent uh, court appearance. Conversely, the Kremlin has been seeking to win a struggle for, in some ways, dampening down the imagination of the Russians, of telling them that basically, actually, change is dangerous, if it's possible at all, and it could well lead to things giving even worse. So what happens when new people come along with their own attempts to address this issue and to sort of catch the imagination of the Russian people? This could be tremendously unpredictable. And now let's look at the last scenario, and I left it to the last because in some ways it's the saddest, it's the shabbiest, it's the drabbest. It's the not-much-really-happens scenario. Team Navalny are largely quarrelled. Yes, of course, one, one cannot eliminate them from the political scene, especially because you know, quite a few of them are out of the country. But basically, they remain, or they are pushed back, rather, into being a, a metropolitan Moscow and St. Petersburg phenomenon. Largely, they are, they are managed. Largely, they are kept into the sort of extremes of, of social media. Navalny himself is sitting in prison, to a large extent, again, marginalised and, frankly, begins to become forgotten. Enough is spent to ensure that the situation never becomes bad enough that Russians feel so forced that they have to, um, uh, you know, rise up or whatever. But it's all very much piecemeal. Targeted benefits here, targeted repressions there. It's basically just simply about holding things together. The signs of life within the systemic opposition never really come to much. The current pressures on the economy are dealable with, they're manageable. So what do we get? Well, slow, shabby decline, as I say. Legitimacy, you know, begins to drain away. People are less and less willing to believe the promises of government figures or even opposition figures. They just simply look to their own interests, to their family, to their immediate day-to-day. The international situation, well, it's, it's fraught, it's, it's aggressive, it's tense, but it's in no one's interest to, to bring it to a real boiling point. Personal sanctions don't really matter when the elite are essentially being forced to stay within Russian bounds or within sort of allied states. China becomes much more of a concern for the West, and it's not as though they therefore seek to turn to Russia to become allies with it, but more to the point, handling Russia becomes so much less of a concern. 
things just go on. Some point, of course, it's going to change. At some point, Putin's going to die, or there will be a successor, or whatever. But until that happens, things just go on. And again, this is the thing we, we must remember. We tend to always look for that sense that things are going to be changing very, very quickly. I mean, again, there are certain pundits, and I won't name them, who you know have had their careers for, for years now spent saying within the next six months there's going to be a dramatic change in the system or whatever. A lot of these kind of systems actually can last a long time until a crucial blow. Marx, for example, once said that wars put nations to the test. They actually sort of demonstrate, in a way, if they've already died, when they, they are suddenly challenged with this. And certainly, the First World War was this absolutely crucial test of Tsarism, a test that it manifestly failed. But let's assume that Russia had managed to keep out of World War I, or indeed that, you know, that, that uh, Gavrilo Princip had never managed his uh, murderous uh, pulling the trigger of his own. How long would Tsarism potentially have lasted? It's an interesting question, an unanswerable question. And likewise, let's say that the August coup of 1991 hadn't happened. I mean, the crucial thing about the August coup was when it failed, it failed because of basically people power in the streets and a, and a, a failure within the elite to be sufficiently united and ruthless. And when it happened, it basically meant that Gorbachev's key weapon against the reformers and the radicals and people like, obviously, Boris Yeltsin, which is that he was the only person who could keep these nasty Soviet-era retreads in line, well, that no longer applied. And therefore, Boris Yeltsin could bring the full force of his malice to bear against Gorbachev, refuse to sign the, the new Union Treaty that he originally had said he would, and essentially the Soviet Union was, was doomed. But if there hadn't been that August coup, if the Union Treaty had been signed, which, of course, would have actually meant, you know, for those of you who aren't up on the uh, detailed minutiae of 1991 politics, um, you know, a, a, a serious shift of power. The Soviet Union, as constructed then, would have been re replaced by something which was generally federal, in which a lot of power went out to the regions. The KGB, in its current form, would have been dissolved. Military spending would have fallen dramatically because no one really wanted to pay into that. But nonetheless, there would still be a Soviet Union of sorts. It would still handle a lot of the, the, the higher order activities, diplomacy, defense, and economic coordination. And it, it may well have survived on. There may well still have been a communist party for years to come that was actually in power, at least in some places, in some ways. But the August coup ensured that that wasn't going to happen. So the point of this is to say that Although, obviously, a lot of people, just simply, if nothing else, for the excitement value, are looking for the big change and the big change soon, we should accept that, actually, it may well be that nothing has changed. It may well be that, yes, Putin will be re-elected in 2024, and everyone will know that it was fiddled, but everyone will go along with it. And for years to come, we're going to be dealing with the same Russian Federation, the same Russian government, the same Russian system. Mature Putin, high Putin, late Putinism, whatever we want to call it, this could be around for a while yet. Isn't that a rather downbeat way to end? Well, it is, but again, my point was, look, none of these do I think are necessarily the answer for what will happen. But I do think we need to be quite intellectually honest about the extent to which we are in uncharted territory. 
We are in territory in which all kinds of things could happen, that there are too many variables for us to have any kind of confidence about saying what's definitely going to happen in anything other than the shortest of short terms. And perhaps more than anything else, that it may be that nothing much will happen. Personally, I hope something will. I hope there is change. I think the Russian people deserve change, a positive change. But nonetheless, let's stay grounded. Oh dear. Well, I think we've all deserved a break now. And then after, let me come back to the question of Iron Felix and whether he will return to his perch in front of the secret police headquarters of Lubyanka. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So welcome back. Now, the news is that Muscovites are going to be given a vote. They can be given a vote as to whether the largely empty Lubyanka Square will either be host once again to Iron Felix Zhezhinsky, the founder of the Soviet political police, whose statue was removed from there in 1991, or a new statue of Alexander Nevsky, the uh, medieval prince who was particularly famous you know, for Eisenstein's film Alexander Nevsky and the battle against the Teutonic Knights on the ice. But I'll come to that in a moment. Now, I think it's interesting because precisely it addresses this whole issue of, first of all, what do you do with past memories that aren't past enough? I mean, this is the thing. I mean, obviously, it, it, it's a whole political struggle being waged in the West about what do you do with the statues to pass figures and the whole toppling of people because... At some point, some of their money may have come from slavery or whatever. But even so, I mean, these are people who are in the, in the deep historical past. It, it's rather different when it's people who are you know, quite literally just about within, well, not quite, but near living memory. And people whose deeds are, it has to be said, pretty, pretty dark. So, Iron Felix. Felix Zhezinski, born of Polish gentry, joined the Bolshevik party. Um, it's quite interesting, actually. At school, he had his top marks for divine law. And in some ways, you know, he was still obsessed with scripture, even if actually it was a, a red book instead. Very much a, a zealot. And no, no wonder, as a result of that, was appointed to form the first Bolshevik political police force, which was the All-Russian Extraordinary Commission for Combating Counter-Revolution and Sabotage, generally known as the Cheka, for the Extraordinary Commission. Again, that Extraordinary Commission, is, it's worth noting. Um, however naively, the assumption was that this was going to be just a temporary measure. It was to deal with the immediate crisis of the post-revolutionary era, and then, soon enough, the, the Civil War. And then, later on, at some point, it would no longer be needed. Well, frankly, the Cheka is still alive and well today in the form of the FSB. In 1918, it was actually renamed from being the sort of Commission for, for Combating Counter-Revolution and Sabotage to Counter-Revolution Profiteering and Sabotage. So it's interesting how even at that point, economic crime was going to be pretty kind of central to its role. And 1922, it was renamed as, as the GPU, the State Political Directorate. And there's a euphemistically bland title for you. 
as part of the sort of rolling process of renamings and rebrandings that would mark the evolution of this, this um, distinctly sinister force. And in this role, I mean, Zhezhinsky was an absolutely central figure to the Red Terror of the Civil War. The blatant use of violence and extra-legal methods to do everything from expropriate grain from the peasantry to just shoot the uh, supposed anti-revolutionary forces. Um, hence the, the infamous Polish political joke about why Felix Zhezhinsky is the greatest of all Poles. Why? Well, because he killed more Russians than any other Pole. Lenin died in 1924, and Zhezhinsky dies in 1926 of uh, natural causes, which is actually something that will be relatively rare for his immediate successors. Stalin at the time described him as a devout knight of the proletariat, but he was actually probably quite relieved by Zhezhinsky's death. Not because they had any particular problems, if anything, Zhezhinsky sort of lent towards Stalin's more sort of maximalist approach, but rather that Stalin wanted to maintain his personal control of the security forces, and Zhezhinsky was just too powerful a figure to, to allow that. Now, that's Zhezhinsky, the sort of uh, the snapshot. In 1958, this 15-ton iron statue, iron appropriately enough, given he was known as Iron Felix for his uh, unbending ways, was erected in what is now Lubyanka Square, and was that point Zhezhinsky Square, on which there is the, the building, the infamous Lubyanka building, headquarters of the KGB, and still an FSB building today. Though it's worth noting it's not technically still the headquarters of the FSB. If you're in Lubyanka Square and you're looking at the Lubyanka building, this, this really actually quite quite elegant sand and tan building from the late 19th century, there is a big ugly grey building that you will see to your left on the other side of um, the, the street that goes along the side of Lubyanka. That actually is the FSB headquarters. And if you go closer, you'll see it actually has the uh, old KGB sword and shield logo carved into it um, rather dis discreetly. But anyway, the point is this is clearly the sort of the hub, symbolically as well as practically, of Russian political policing. And so from 1958, Iron Felix, you know, suitable heroic-looking statue, his you know, great coat rippling in the wind, stood there surveying in rather menacing form all around. Not surprisingly, his statue was one of the first to go. 1991, when there's still the Soviet Union, after the failure of the August coup, um, a crowd tried in vain to topple it. Iron Felix was not to be moved, though, until a municipal work crew arrived with a crane and toppled it and dragged it away. And for, for years, Zhezhinsky sat in a municipal lot until eventually joined all the other toppled heroes in the Museon Park and I must say, if you've not been, actually, and you, you do go to Moscow, you know, in those days, in those future Halcyon days where we'll be able to travel, I mean, it is quite an extraordinary place, the Museon Park, um, you know, in which statuary of, of Lenin and Kalinin and Stalin and Zhezhinsky and you name it, and Brezhnev's and such like, all sort of around in these very, very rather elegant, hipsterish surroundings. Anyway... That was actually, in some ways, I always thought quite an elegant solution. You don't try and pretend that it doesn't ex that it didn't exist. 
But on the other hand, you put them in, in a park where they precisely become relics of the past rather than anything of, of, of current relevance. I'm, I'm, again, maybe it's because I'm a historian by training. The idea of actually trying to cancel people from history, I do find distinctly problematic, but that's just me. Now, well, Zhezhinsky's statue may be gone, but he still continues to loom pretty large. Czechist is still a term widely used as a generic term for people within the security, you know, p- political police apparatus, and indeed they themselves use it about themselves. There is a uh, you know, huge interest in the, sort of the history of Russian and Soviet intelligence and security forces, whether we're talking about sort of TV and film, or whether we're talking about you know, a very uh, substantial body of literature, some of which is actually exceedingly good and very scholarly, a fair amount of which is anything but. I mentioned in a little piece I wrote for uh, The Spectator on this that if you go to Globus Bookstore, which is right next to Lubyanka, and it actually is a really, really good bookshop, um, but you know, it has a whole section on intelligence literature, uh, much of which is, I have to say, verging on the hagiographical in terms of its positive portrayal of the various Czechists. But you can go to others. Um, I mean, Dom Kinigi on, on New Arbat is also, A, it's a, a good bookshop, but again, it's one which does have a very extensive intelligence section. Frankly, you can find them in bookshops all over. But in any case, this is really just a symptom. These books are there presumably because people will buy them. As a result, there has been a slow attempt to try and rehabilitate Zhezhinsky. As of 2013, almost twice as many Russians were in favour of restoring the statue as were against it when surveyed. And there have been regular petitions, usually from you know, various, I hesitate to call them the, the loony nationalist fringe, but largely from the new loony nationalist fringe, petitioning for Zhezhinsky to return. Now, these have always been rejected or just simply allowed to, to be ignored. Until now. Now, on the other hand, the Kremlin seems to be smiling on the idea. And we have this uh, you know, petition from, again, the usual sort of nationalist figures. But instead of being ignored, it actually had led to this poll. Should it be, and it's interesting, there is no kind of, no keep it as is. Should it be Nevsky or Zhezhinsky? Now, if we look at Alexander Nevsky, 13th century prince, he was the prince of Novgorod, who very famously has had defeated the Teutonic Knights. Well, actually, it was mainly the Livonian Order of the Sword, but never mind that. But anyway, he defeated the Teutonic Knights in their invasion uh, on the Battle of the Ice in 1242, which was, as I said, immortalised by Eisenstein's film about it. Though the idea that the, the heavily armed Teutons were sort of encouraged onto the ice and then they sort of fell through the ice, that's purely a fantasy from the film. But hey, it's a very good film. Excellent soundtrack by Prokofiev as well. But the point is, yes, so he was on one level, um, clearly from that, a, a great Russian patriot. At the same time, though, you know, he was a very, very comfortable uh, in dealing with the Golden Horde, the Mongols. And as a result of that, he was made Grand Prince of Vladimir. Um, and in fact, in 1259, he led an army on behalf of the Golden Horde to Novgorod, the city of which he had previously been prince, and forced them to pay tribute to the Golden Horde on pain of brutal sacking. So, is he a patriot, or is he actually an uber-quizzling? And it's interesting that uh, his son to his second wife, Daniil, 
who was granted the, at that time, thoroughly insignificant little town of Moscow as his uh, princely dominion, and would actually found the Danilovich dynasty, which actually would, would then become sort of crucial in seeing Moscow rise as the dominant city across the Rus, precisely by cooperation, active, active collaboration with the Mongols of the Golden Horde. So he was competent, he was ruthless, he was successful, he was also interestingly historically ambiguous, if we're honest about this, but the point is he's safely a 13th century rather than 20th century figure. Now, those people who instead are trying to rehabilitate Dzerzhinsky, they, they, they talk about the fact that he was you know, the hard man that was needed for hard times. They point out all the um, admirable work he did in terms of setting up orphanages. Um, though I must admit, perhaps it's just a certain sort of dark humour that makes me wonder, yeah, but who might have made them orphans in the first place? But never mind that. But the thing is, I mean, generally speaking, he was clearly a ghastly zealot who not only presided over terror, but created the, the, the initial machine that Stalin would in due course expand to his industrial generator of mass terror. Perhaps, perhaps if this had been a, you know, a few centuries in the past, all the, the, the sharper edges of Zhezhinsky's uh, memory would have been rubbed away and he could be reassessed as, as often happens. But the point is not now. Now, it's impossible to put Zhezhinsky back on his, his, his plinth in his square and not regard that as a rehabilitation of the past uh, horrors. But also, again, you have to think, well, why, why now? Why is it now the Kremlin is, is willing to, to countenance this? Well, clearly as a warning to society, a warning that of the resources available to the state it should choose to crack down, and also a reminder of actually how bad things could be. And as well as a warning to society, probably also a sop to the Siloviki, to the security apparatus. These are people who do actually regard it as an affront to them, their memory, and the, the traditions of their service, that Zhezhinsky is, is treated like this pariah. So it could be that, in fact, this is also a way of, of making them feel warm and fuzzy. Because, after all, the more the state depends on repression, the more it dep depends upon the forces of repression. But there is, let me end what has otherwise been a distinctly miserable podcast with a little potential nugget of hope. It is also possible that actually the Kremlin has decided this time to put it to a vote to try and settle the issue for once and for all. After all, Nevsky fits perfectly within the kind of Putinist pantheon of figures who were, you know, competent and ruthless, but above all, they were active in advancing the interests of the state that in due course would become Russia. So he fits perfectly. And by actually allowing there to be a vote, and let's say Nevsky wins, which is entirely possible, well, it allows the Kremlin to say, look, this issue has now been settled. You know, ultimately, we wouldn't have had a problem with, with Dzerzhinsky returning to his post, but Iron Felix is now rusticated to Museon for once and for all, precisely because that has been the will of Muscovites. So it was an attempt to try and neutralise this particular point of nationalist critique and Silovic resentment. It could just be finally to get it out of the way. After all, it's been almost every year that there has been a petition to get Dzerzhinsky reinstated. 
Maybe they would just like to stop this damn flow of petitions. And it could be that in a couple of years' time, we will see Alexander Nevsky installed proudly in Lubyanka Square. And Dzerzhinsky? Dzerzhinsky can stay just where he is. And on that note, I will stay where I am. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Goodbye. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Thank you.